Welcome to the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast, a general practice podcast brought to you by Menlo Park Recruitment. Illuminating Primary Care is here to quiz primary care leaders to offer professional knowledge, experience and insight on the biggest topics in general practice. It's the podcast to listen to if you work in primary care. Welcome to the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast. Welcome to Illuminating Primary Care Podcast brought to you by Menlo Park Recruitment. I'm your host, Victoria Ashton, and I'm joined by Dr. Valid Gafour. I worked with Valid a few years ago, and he's now a very successful partner at a large practice in Blackpool. Hello, Valid. Hey, how are you, Victoria? I'm very well. I hope you are too. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. <laughs> good. Uh, so me and Valid have had many conversations, and the conversation we had a few weeks ago um, I found extremely interesting and I thought it'd be really good to share with our audience. So what we're going to be talking about today is the real impact of the investment and impact fund. But first of all, we think it's obviously important to address um, networks. So could you please fully give me an overview of um, primary care networks as I believe that this is where funding has been affected? Yeah, so historically, funding has always come into primary care as in the practice directly. Um, and every now and then, NHS England has held a pot of funding which they've released in under certain circumstances. But for the last few years, um, I think it's the last three, three, four years, we've had primary care networks. So primary care networks are a new initiative that essentially group practices together based on locality and it's focused around giving care rather than management. So like you've had CCGs and you've had other organizations that have grouped practices in a locality, but it's more been from an organizational point of view, whereas a network is is care focused. So it's very, very much, you know, that network will get funded and will commission and will recruit depending on its locality. So the, the principle is that networks will tailor recruitment of staff to their patients needs um, and as a result depending on the size of the network which it is dependent on how many practices and how many patients it caters for it will receive appropriate funding um, from from the government so that that's networks in a nutshell and networks have have been a really interesting, really interesting um, topic. So some people have been very involved with networks and some people have felt quite um, put off by the idea of networks because people have their historical commitments, like their quaff and their usual indicators. And this is all completely separate to your normal patient demand, your normal COVID pressure, your growing aging population. So people have their normal version of primary care that they've always had to deal with. And, and this, for a lot of people, feels like an extra thing, whereas some people sort of view it as an opportunity or they view it as like an extra an extra technique used to recruit more staff. So how does the Investment and Impact Fund come in? Can you explain to me what the IIF, we'll abbreviate it, uh, what that is? Yeah. So 
to make that make sense, we should probably quickly touch on the fact that you have something called a DES, so a directed enhanced service, which is when DESs are usually on like a nationwide scale. So it'll be the case that, you know, primary care should offer, I don't know, let's say sexual health services, or it should offer certain services, and maybe those services are not part of your routine contract. So primary care is familiar with, with DESs in general, but networks have been given a DES and it's called the primary care network DES. Um, and in keeping with that, one specific area of that is the IIF. So the the DES is, is very centered around specific things. It's centered around access. So access meaning patients being able to get appointments easily and in a timely manner. Um, and then the network DES has, has sort of stated that the IIF section of it is specific to being proactive. So it's specific to doing things that on the surface of it would just all be steps beyond what people are already doing, but everybody would probably agree they're fantastic things to do. So I'll, I'll give you an example. So learning disability checks or learning disability health reviews is something contained within COAF. It's part of what a GP should normally do. As, when I say GP, I mean the practice. So it's something a surgery should already do. They should have a list of patients that have learning disabilities, and then they should be touching base with them, with their carers once a year, making sure their health needs are met. Um, and the reason for that is these people are vulnerable, so that they're at, they're at higher risk. So that's emphasized again in the IIF. So the so one of the criteria is, is learning disability um, assessments. So you could argue it's doing the same work. So as in, if you're doing your work for COAF, you'd be doing the IAF work anyway, um, which is, I think, how everybody wants it to be. And that's how it, it basically gives people twice as much reason to do it. So if, if you were hitting it on the COAF numbers, at least you would be hitting it on the IAF. Like it's, it's, just, it's just extra incentive, isn't it? It's extra incentive to focus on an area. Now, the difficulty comes in, you would think if you're doing the same thing, it's recorded in the same way. So if I'm, or one of my team members is doing a learning disability review, we have methods to record how we do that. So we use what's called templates and there's companies that literally make a living, you know, having these templates available on subscription because they're, they're excellent at mapping out what you need to do and then it helps staff not miss the essential things like you know make sure you've done a blood test to make sure you've offered them a medication review make sure you've asked them if they're sexually active all these sorts of things you know that you would need to do in, in an annual review but those codes and checks don't actually tick the boxes for IIF and, and I'm using that phrase deliberately when I say tick the boxes because you have done the work <laughs> so you you know as in the whole the whole purpose was to do a review and you've done the review but then if you've not hit a minimum target then it classes it as if you haven't done it all together so i'll i'll give you an example let's say the minimum target is 60 percent. so if you've if you have 100 patients it means 60 of them should have had that review and should have been coded in the way the IIF wants. Now, if you've done 50%, well, let's, but the chances are most of them are going to get reviewed regardless because you would have done that for COF anyway. 
um, if you weren't doing it as you go along. Um, and I'll talk through what that means in just a sec, but let's say you've done your quaff, so you've physically seen your patients, you've done everything you needed to do, but you haven't recorded it in the way the IAF needed, then you would receive none of that funding. So you've done the work, the patients are, are satisfied, they're safe, you've done the quaff side of things, but because you've not recorded it a certain way for the IAF, that's it, you lose all the funding. Yeah, so you, you don't receive any of it for that point. So so let's say, for example, it's worth 30 points, okay? Yeah. Each, point, each point is worth something like £200, roughly. So, you know, 200 times 30, what is that, 6,000? Yeah. I think so. <laughs> You put me on the spot there, Valid. <laughs> so I, I mean, I'm guessing myself, but like, yeah. so that, that, for example, would be six care funding you've lost straight away for work that you've actually done. Um. And there's, there's a couple of things to be aware of because a lot of this sounds like finance or money grabbing, but it, it's not because the point is if what the way healthcare is supposed to work is you're supposed to see a patient and then depending on what that patient has, you're supposed to code the appropriate things. So for example, that person might come to you with a chest infection, but they've got a learning disability. So you, you deal with the chest infection and then you recognize, ah, this person has a learning disability. So while they're there, you'd probably say to them, how have you been otherwise? Um, are you sexually active? Have you had a blood test recently? Do you mind if I also check your blood pressure? So you, you'd you be taking the opportunity to think, ah, this is a vulnerable person. They didn't come for this, but since they're here, let's, let's get other stuff done. Yeah. Um, and then if towards the end of the year, all of the people on that register have not been seen, then obviously they either haven't felt the need to be seen or they've come in and the person's been distracted by what they've come in with and not focused on the general health, which is which is easily done. If you come in with an ankle sprain, you might not talk about some of the general health. You might just focus on the ankle sprain because obviously pressures are, are tense. So then you would make a specific effort to bring in those that you haven't seen because you'd be thinking, oh, hang on, there's, there's 50 people here that ideally we should have seen in the last 12 months that we haven't. So, you know, let's let's get them in and let's get them in and see them. So that, that's the reason the registers are important because if somebody doesn't naturally come your way, you can specifically then search for them. And, and if you're doing all that work and then actually you're not getting funding because there's different letters and numbers that should have been put into the machine, um, which, which you'd think is easy, but it's not. It's not like um, we use this phrase in our in our practice. You know, we wish everything was like IKEA furniture. When you when you when you get IKEA furniture, you get the instructions with it, don't you? And it and it says these are the pieces. Make sure you've got the pieces. These are the steps to assemble the furniture. It's not like that in healthcare. A a funding criteria will be created, and you'll be told about that funding criteria after it's been implemented. It's it's not it's not like somebody says in six months time. IIF is going to be here. Here are going to be the parameters that you are going to need to use. And these are the codes you will need to record because then you'd actually have time to prepare. No, what will happen is there'll be a government announcement, you know, two weeks from now, this new fund is being created. And then what is that fund? We don't know. We'll tell you closer to the time. The fund will come into place. You'll then be three months down the line and someone else say, oh, did you not get this email telling you about the codes you should be using? And you're like you're three months into the financial year, so it's it's that it's that thing of 
um because it, it makes it makes us sound very incompetent when i talk about the way i am but it's not it's not our fault as in we if somebody actually said here's your blueprint for the next 12 months here are the codes you're going to need to use here's the way to get organized then we could sit down and plan it um but but often things as you'll be aware with contract changes and everything else get changed at a very short notice and we often don't have the intricacies or the details of what to do why can't I don't know if anybody's proposed this, but to me, this seems like a lot of extra work, unnecessary extra work when you're doing the same job. If you're hitting Quaff's targets and they're happy with you, why can't the IIF work in conjunction with Quaff and you just have the one system to record everything and then nothing gets missed and no practices are going without what's essentially really important funding for the work that they do why, why can't that be done i honestly um it i mean the thing i'd say to you is it almost makes too much sense <laughs> so <laughs> nothing seems to nothing seems to um, be done in a simple way in healthcare and and i and i can understand if it is a different target so for example i can understand if it's something to do with flu jabs given within a certain age range then that's not the same as give everyone a flu jab because then you talk that an age range is different mm -hmm. but with the stuff i'm talking about for iif it's literally the same it's literally has had an annual check so as in as in like i'm talking about where it's relevant it would be really helpful if it was the same coding because mm -hmm. because otherwise it's and it's not you see so the thing is it's still doable, but firstly, somebody has to look through the 107-page document that is the IIF document and go through every single parameter, every single point, reference every single code, then has to check every single patient on every relevant register. Like, that's a... Who has time for that in exactly primary that's, care? That's a ridiculous amount of work. Yeah. Not only that the just the sheer new training that you would have to give to your staff members to say you've always done it this way and this has always been fine but by the way here are all the things that we now need you to also include all of these things for and it's literally an admin exercise isn't it it's because because they're doing the same thing they've always done mm. they've always done their learning disability reviews they've always done it in the interest of the patient the actual things you're doing are the same so so you're basically just giving them we, we always say, you know, it's death by paperwork. Um, it, it's just this thing of you've got extra admin duties, extra responsibilities, and that aspect of the job doesn't come with any funding. It's not like you get an extra member of the admin team who can take charge of the IIF. Our funding in primary care is actually shrinking year on year. So it, we have a shrinking funding stream and an increased demand on staff, which is why so much of the staff are burning out. So it's things like this that people aren't really aware of. So obviously this this coding side of things seems a little ridiculous, especially if it's exactly the same thing that you'd be doing with Quaff. Um, and I'm sure there's good intentions in place with the IIF, um, but is the coding side the only concern, the only issue, or is there anything else that's going on within the IIF that are causing practices difficulties when it comes to funding? Yeah, several things really. So um, some of this is up for debate and some of this is almost established. Um, the first thing is 
the IIF funding is for the network, right? So as in those funds come to the network, not to the practices. So most people, and I say most people loosely because it's not like I've spoke to most GPs, but from my experience, the majority of GPs I know will want to use staff from the network to do the IIF work because that money is going to go back into the network. It's not going to benefit the practice. Um, so you don't. You, it's not really a smart thing to do to use your personal staff that you pay for separate to the network. So as in you personally fund your personal staff and then they are not doing their usual work, which is consulting patients, doing medication reviews. Take a pharmacist, for example, right? So this pharmacist would not be speaking to his normal hypertensive patients. He would not be doing medication reviews. He would not be reviewing prescription requests. Instead, he would be dealing with some sort of medication-related target on the IIF list. So one, that's going to reduce your patient consultations. So you're going to lose the number of available pharmacy appointments, which obviously your patients are not going to be happy about. And the funding that comes in from that isn't even going to give you the ability to replace that person with somebody else for the practice because it's going to the network. So, and the network money isn't your money. The network money is a collective pot. And that collective pot has to work for the collective. So if you turn around to the collective and you say, well, I use my personal staff members to do this IIF work, they're going to say, well, why didn't you just use the network staff to do it? You know, their, their salaries are funded through this income. So that so that's the general approach of people. The problem with that is when it's our pot, we can do whatever we want with it. So it, in our surgery, we could say our surgery struggles to recruit doctors. We need lots of pharmacists and ACPs to help us with the clinical work. Right? We're in a geographically difficult area to recruit. We need lots of allied health professionals to help us with our role in seeing patients. Now, another area in, in like a big city, you know, London, Manchester, Leeds, where there are potentially lots more doctors, they might not struggle as much. They still will struggle because there's a recruitment issue across the country, but they might not struggle as much. Um, so they might say, right, so our personal funding, we actually want to prioritise having, I don't know, less uh, practice nurses. We want, we need more practice nurses. We've got enough doctors. We need more practice nurses. So they can do that. Now, with network funding, you don't have that choice. So the staff you can recruit is dictated to you. So you, you, you're told you have this selection of staff members that you can recruit, that you can recruit from, which, which does not include uh, practice nurses, which does not include doctors. That's and, crazy. And and up until this April didn't include AMPs. So Absolutely. so so very so very like you know so none of the staff that we usually that we usually would depend on you could you could use. Um and they also put a restriction on the rate you can pay the staff in terms of what you can be funded for the role. And that funding is in nearly every case inferior to what that person would get elsewhere so 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 then it's also a difficult position to fill because because people are you know i'll give you an example i can't remember off the top of my head i think the pharmacist rates like 44 pounds or something an hour something like that 
Um, but they're making more than that working in the community. You know, they're working, they're just, just doing what for them is comfortable work in the community. They would get paid that or more. So if you want a prescribing pharmacist, you're never going to get that at, at that sort of rate. What you will get is a brand new pharmacist fresh out of uni who is interested in seeing what primary care is about, who needs a lot of training, a lot of supervision, a lot of mentoring, and will almost need you to explain every role that you're giving to them. So typically you get relatively junior members of staff who need lots of training, advice and guidance and supervision which you put out for uh, well i'll give you one clear example we were we had an advert out for a mental health worker for two and a half years i think i think two and a half years and one was recruited recently um and they didn't feel so it was like a job share between the hospital and the network and the hospital was supposed to provide the mentoring and we were supposed to provide the on-site supervision like a dual funded role and they, did, they didn't feel that the trust was supporting them and they'd give their resignation in. And that took you two years to get that individual. That took us two and, years. And, and then they didn't stay. So let me just recap on this. So the, the IAF dictate who you're allowed to recruit. They dictate how much you're allowed to pay them. And it doesn't include practice nurses and GPs, which are in massive demand everywhere. Um, and he said recently AMPs have been added to that, though, which thank goodness for that. So let's say in your practice, um, you don't need the staff that they're saying you're allowed to recruit. So you don't invest that money into those staff. What happens? So it... It would be unusual if you didn't need any of them because there's a there's a broad variety of what's offered. So you can have like podiatrists, uh, first contact practitioners, which are physios, paramedics, but you might already have had like a home visiting team set up in your area. So you might think, well, actually, I don't need a paramedic or you might have already employed a physio. So you might think you might have been very forward planning. You know, people before COVID had mental health workers, physios, pharmacists in their practices so you might have already been ahead of the curve and you might have not really needed those roles but to answer your question if you don't use the funding that is allocated to your pcn they basically say well it looks like you don't need it so we just won't give it to you next year um and even though the following year you could have a real need for the clinicians that they're enabling you to recruit that's it tough you didn't get it last you didn't use it last year so you're not having it this year yeah essentially that's uh, just crazy. That's a very normal NHS funding tactic. You know, because the system is strapped for cash, um, they say, well, if we give funding to someone and if they don't use it, evidently that means they did not need it. So um, you then don't get the funding again, as in that's like permanently lost. From but your... primary care is evolving so much. How can you deny a practice funding if the circumstances have changed and let's face it especially since covid circumstances have changed immensely haven't they and they continue to do so so that just seems ridiculous okay you don't use it that year you've you've lost it but don't deny them the option to use it the following year that that's just i said it before crazy 
It yeah. is. So I know that you've done a lot of work within your practice to address these issues and um, and 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 quite well, from what I understand. Obviously, there's probably going to be a lot of practices out there that can relate to this conversation, the things that you're bringing to light here. Is there a way you could propose, um, yeah, is there any suggestions you would have for them to help alleviate this and avoid issues with the IIF? Yeah, so there's, there's two bits there. So one is the bit about network staffing. So you in an ideal world you'd have something like a skill matrix where you would look at across your network what services and skills do your clinicians and colleagues have and you would look at where the natural gaps are so for example maybe you've got lots of clinical staff you know you've got lots of paramedics and ANPs and GPs but what you're really really lacking on is the medication side of things so you're really lacking on people that can do med reviews structured medication reviews um, there's a lot of things on the IIF about like sort of um, continuity and recyclable energy and sort of being green, basically. Um, so things like switching inhalers over to carbon-free inhalers because it's better for the environment and there's funding attached to that. So you, people obviously you want to, so they want you to do it. So the, the sort of medication-driven things are going to be best done by pharmacists, um, naturally, because they're medication specialists. So then, then as a network, you might say, ah, we should prioritize getting pharmacists. You know, we should prioritize that so it can help us do our IIF work. Um, so it can help us hit. So you've got the DES, which is the overarching thing, which is everything. That's like online access, it's total triage, it's care home care. And a bit of that is IIF. Um, but the IIF is the bit that is, it's sort of the hardest to get, uh, which is why people talk about the IAF, even though it's one portion of it. Because the issue is, let's say your inhaler target for green energy is 60%, right? And let's say one of your pharmacists goes off sick and some of them are busy with quaff and some of them are busy with patient consultations. But all year, you, they've maybe they've switched 50% of your, of your patients to um, the sort of green alternative. Now, if you don't hit the minimum threshold of 60%, you get nothing. So so it's that thing of, so so basically the, the thing, and this isn't how it should be, but what people are having to do is they're having to look at the targets. They're having to say, right, is this actually achievable? You know, this, this target of 70% minimum, are we really going to be able to do this? Because if we're not, let's just forget the whole thing. Um, you know what, and and that's not how it should be. It's um, it should be like like Quaff, for example. You get funded according to what you do. So the better you do, the better funded it is. But it's it's really it's really it's really upsetting when you know you can't recruit for a position because the rate you can offer is capped, and then. The thing you want to use them for is so hard to achieve. It's so, that's why people talk about IIF because it's it's so difficult to do well. Like for example, one of the targets on IIF, um, actually this year now, they actually wanted to put it in place last year, but I think they got so much kickback they deferred it for a year. Um, which was um, all patients should be seen within two weeks. So 
we were like, what the heck happens to your four to six week, like normal reviews? You know, you start a medication, you tell a patient, I want to see you in six weeks. I want to see you in four weeks. That's supposed to be continuity of care. It's supposed to be chronic condition management. That's what primary care is all about. Whereas it's sort of forcing you to become this more acute service is forcing you to become more short term need rather than long term care. You know, why wasn't it instead more than 50% of your patients should have access to appointments in four to six weeks down the line so that they're not going to A&E, so that they're not going to the walk-in centre. Why why not insist that we offer chronic follow-up appointments instead instead of saying, no, offer them appointments now? Um, so that isn't going to be sustainable. Like, who the heck's going to be able to offer that? Most people can barely offer four-week appointments they're so far behind and they're so short-staffed so how many surgeries are going to say yep I, I think we'll manage that to a high percentage successfully and and if they did at what cost if if you're able to offer those appointments within two weeks you probably have had to cut a lot of your long-term follow-up appointments because those appointments need to come from somewhere each person can only see so many patients um so it's it's these so the, the the things on IIF that are, some of them are very straightforward, like the learning disability thing, and I absolutely agree with it, and we do it anyway, right? I absolutely agree with it. Flu vaccines, I agree with. We do them anyway. People should be getting flu vaccines. It's pushed heavily nationally. I get all of that, and then you've got some things where we're switching people to green inhalers. Okay, you can argue that's good for the environment. Fine. I'm not sure it's the best use of time for highly skilled members of the team, like pharmacists. Um, I, I wonder if they could be doing more productive things with their time. Mm. And then you have things like see everyone within two weeks and you're like, what the heck do I do with this? You know, do, do I just ignore this altogether? Or, or do we do we genuinely try to do this? Um, and if we do try to do it, what do we sacrifice? Because the system is stretched, the appointments are limited. Do we give up? Um, four-week review appointments do we just no longer offer them or do we only offer them for very serious conditions and so these are the sort of stresses these conversations create in practices and obviously having demand covid and reduced general funding then restricted network funding then what a lot of people feel like are almost unrealistic unachievable iif targets it, it feels quite overwhelming. Mm. Um, it sounds like. Yeah, and, and that's why, you know, when people talk about GPs burning out, primary care burning out, this is why. It's, it's not one thing. It's not, you know, my pay packet hasn't increased in a year and a half. That's not the problem. The problem is the other 105 things that are going wrong, and then it's everyone's individual coping point. For you, the 20th thing might be the thing that does it for you. For another person, it might be the 105th thing that does it for them. But everyone's got a breaking point. And and the question is, how do you how do you prioritize where to spend your attention um, for IIF? You know, what's going to cause the practices the least amount of stress while still providing good care for patients, while realistically being able to achieve some targets? That's the that's the difficult conversation. What have you done in your practice for LEAD? So we are in a very unique position because in Blackpool, there's a massive GP shortage, even compared to nationally. So obviously, wherever you've got 
so of you know golden hello and golden handshake type schemes to give funding for people to join they're particularly difficult to recruit in and blackpool is one of them areas so blackpool has always had or not always had compared to other areas in the country it's been more willing to accept allied health professionals in the workforce so for example my practice you know the, the number of pharmacists and ACPs far outweigh the number of GPs. So most of our workforce is non-medical, it's non, it's non-doctors. So we're relatively confident knowing what people's boundaries are and knowing what people can do confidently and what they can't do confidently. So we actually, and I'm not advising everyone else to do this, but we give some of the more complex medication work, even if it's for the IIF. We use our practice staff to do some of it because it's it might be more complicated or, or they might be able to do a lot of it in a small space of time, so it's efficient for them to do it. And then if the role that, that they were going to do is perhaps relatively simpler, like maybe it's a routine high blood pressure medication review, then that instead might get done by our practice nurse. Or if we've got a more a more junior pharmacist in training, perhaps from the network, they would still be able to do a medication review. So we might give that work to them instead. So we're trying to use the sort of unique strengths of individuals, regardless of which domain they're working in. Um, and overall, it works out. So, <laughs> like, you know, it might be that network IIF stuff is done by the practice pharmacist, but then the network pharmacist might do something for the practice, um, which isn't technically how most people would probably use them, but that works for us. Yeah, but obviously not everybody's got the luxury of such a great clinical support team. Yeah. Uh, you've got your smaller practices with a handful of staff, and it's going to prove quite difficult for them you did mention earlier on that the network have staff that can help with this but um how does that work does the practice contact the network and go we need x y and z doing um, so most networks are probably between two and four practices um the more practices you have the less amount of time that member of team that member of staff will spend in your practice so if it's a paramedic and let's say there are five practices in your network if they're all roughly the same size because it's it's not dependent on practices it's dependent on how many patients your practice has because your need comes from your patient list size if you've got five practices and one of them is only 10 percent of the size of the other four then obviously you'd assume that one practice has a far lower need than all the other practices because there's less patients there. So if you have five practices and they're all even patient numbers, then that paramedic on average would do one day at each practice. Now, if that paramedic's job, so, so this is now this is now the very tricky bit. So that would be the technical allocation of the paramedic. If, and most networks have fairly senior clinicians leading them because that's they're usually into management which is why they're bothering to be involved in the network in the first place so most of them would think a little bit more sensibly and they'd say well hang on this paramedics job is to let's say in this area do home visits let's say that's why they've got the paramedic right it's not it's not why everybody uses them but let's just assume that's why they're being used 
it would make more sense to say, right, this paramedic works across the five sites every day. So this parrot, so let's say geographically, it's like a couple of miles between the surgeries and it's not that far. Then you say, right, so this paramedic maybe works out of a central building where they've got somebody they can speak to, get advice from, and all day for the five days, requests come in for visits and they go and do the visits. So that way, the practices have cover all days of the week rather than one practice having lots of cover on one day and no cover on the rest. That would be a practical solution. But that comes down to individual networks. That comes down to their preferences. Some practices are very, you know, no, I want my person for one day to do my stuff. Um, and that's that's the difficulty in professional working. Because if I, if I, it, let's say if your network is only two practices and you have polar opposite ways of working, right? Let's say one of you is entirely doctor focused and one of you is entirely allied health professional focus. It goes to say that your outlook and your approach is probably going to be entirely different. So it might be that you can't have a combined role for that paramedic. That paramedic would probably be doing very different things for both practices, um, which then makes it hard for the paramedic because they don't have the same job spec necessarily. They have different roles and responsibilities. And that can be very confusing, especially if you're like a, if you are a junior member of the team. So tapping into the network's staff um, could be quite tricky as well, because not only have they got their own duties, but if you are part of a larger network with quite a large number of practices, then I would imagine that the work that needs to be conducted to satisfy the IIF needs more than maybe one person a week, one day a week coming in and helping a practice. So this yeah. obviously shows me why practices are having to use their own staff yeah. and take them away from the jobs that need doing in practice to satisfy the needs of the IIF. It's a bit of a vicious circle, isn't it? Yeah. So there's there's two things for that. So firstly, you're right. And if that money comes into the network, it doesn't really benefit the practice. So it's not like, so when the practice gives up its staff member to do IIF work, that practice doesn't benefit from that. Because it's not like the network money is for the practice, it's for the network. So if the network gets money, it can use it to recruit another staff member, um, which... So it's, it's not like, like you, you might get the benefit indirectly. So you might have given up your staff member's time to raise money for the network. Maybe that then lets you get a paramedic, which helps you with your home visits. But it's not going to be related to the pharmacist time that you lost. Um, so, that, so that's one thing to consider. The second thing is, um, again, it comes down to how much time planning and how forward thinking network directors are. But you could, in theory, <clears throat> have a designated space or even a virtual space where you say this is a network, I don't know, hub, uh, hub or something. For some reason, I was going to say command center. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> that says more about me than anything else. Very, very militant. <laughs> so you've got like this network hub. And let's say you have forward vision and you say right i've seen the iif for next year i've seen these are like you know 50 percent of the iif is due to medication related things 
So for the, for the prospective year, I want to focus on recruiting pharmacists and pharmacy technicians um, in a larger proportion than other members of the team, because maybe we've already got lots of clinicians, for example. So then you set up a set up a system and you're like, right, so the pharmacy techs need to do this and the pharmacists need to do this. And here are your deadlines and these are your different work streams. And if you've mapped it out and those people are doing it for the whole network, then you'd probably absolutely smash your IAF targets um, across the board. But that would need everyone to be on board. It would need everyone to agree on the role that you're employing. It would need someone to sit down and map out the whole process. And generally people are struggling with time so it's um but but that but that's the way i see it working really well i see it working well in that second analogy of the paramedic where the paramedic covers all the surgeries and has support and advice and then perhaps you say ah this is the approach we're going to take one's probably not enough why don't we get two why don't we get two paramedics and between them they should be able to cover the five and the benefit of that is then if your GPs are not having to go and do home visits, then they've got more time to see patients or they've got more time to sign their medications or they've got more time to get to think about how to plan a network. You know, like they've got they've got the brain space to do stuff that's good for the practice. Yeah. Because if all you're doing is bang, 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 and all you're doing is the work, then you're not, you never have time to think about anything else. Thank you, Valid. This has been a really, really interesting subject to cover and um, one that I'm sure will resonate with a lot of primary care providers across the country. Um, myself and uh, Dr. Gafour, Valid, I do call him Valid a lot, so I do speak to him a lot, uh, we'll be doing another podcast. Uh, the next podcast will be how um, to help um, newly qualified GPs better understand earnings, uh, the differences between locum earnings, salaried earnings, and how partnership earnings work. So we do hope that you'll join us and we will be notifying you all when that will be taking place once the date has been finalised. Um, once again, Valid, I want to thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure and definitely uh, an eye-opener for myself and maybe a few others that are not in the know about the IIF. Um, so you enjoy the rest of your day and I look forward to when we speak again soon. You take care. You too. It was a pleasure and thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review and share so others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. If you're a practice looking to recruit permanent clinicians, such as GPs, nurses or allied health staff, please get in touch at menloparkrecruitment.com or email james at menloparkrecruitment.com. For daily primary care news, please follow Menlo Park Recruitment on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening and we hope you'll join us next time for another episode of the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast.